Well, good morning. Good morning, and welcome to Emmanuel Baptist Church. Thank you guys for being here uh, to worship with us this morning. Uh, it is an exciting day. I always like when the countdown timer goes, counts down to zero, and then it's not like a rock song. It's just a guy standing here with a microphone. So, so try to keep things interesting. So that, that was my joke for today. We had, um, last Sunday night, we had a great prayer and share outreach. Um, we had about 25 adults go out, 25 adults, 25 kids go out into probably 10, nine or 10 different neighborhoods and walk through those neighborhoods and pray for people. We had some opportunities to share the gospel. So we're going to be putting out the church calendar in the next couple weeks. So just be on the lookout for the next prayer and share event um, and continue to pray that God would just lead our church and lead us in our hearts to care about those around us enough to pray for them and to share uh, who God is. Um, if you are new to Emmanuel, we'd like some information from you. We have, uh, you can find a connection card in the seat back in front of you. Um, just put whatever information you would like. Like for us to have and how we can connect with you, we would love to um, have a phone call or text or get together in person. So just notify that on the connection card and you can drop that when the baskets go past later in the service. We have drop boxes around campus or you can drop it off at the welcome desk in the cafe. A few things uh, just to kind of keep you informed about today after second service, 10 minutes after second service, we're going to have a finance team update, finance ministry team update. Um, there's a few items just that we want to keep the body informed on. So if you're a member, stick around for 10 minutes. Also, if you have children in the hangar or discovery park, we're going to shut down those two before the meeting starts. So go and get your kids and then come back and kids are welcome to be in that meeting. Um, It'll be about a 10 or 15, it should be about a 10 or 15 minute meeting, and then we'll have a time of prayer together. This Friday, our, our joy group, which is our 60 and older group, is getting together to have lunch in the cafe at 11 o'clock. It's always a good time, so if you're 60 and older and want to join for lunch, come to the joy group this Friday at 11 o'clock. Um, next Sunday night, we'll have a family ministry volunteer meeting. If you volunteer in Discovery Park or the Hangar or with students, so preschool, elementary, uh, middle school, high school age students, if you volunteer with those students, please come and join us for this annual meeting. There'll be a meal served. You can register online. Also, if you are interested in, in serving in any of children's areas, Please come and, and join us next Sunday night at 5 o'clock, but you can, you can register online. There will be, if you need child care, there will be child care vouchers available. So contact me or Suzanne Divin, um, and we can, we can get you hooked up with that. Next, uh, not this coming up Friday, but the fall. Father God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for allowing us to get together to worship you, to pray pray together to learn from your word. God, I pray that you would teach us. We want to be faithful um, with what you've commanded us. So God, I pray that you would that you would help us to know that you are in control of everything around us. And I pray that you would help us to know that you're in control of our lives and our storms and our salvation. God, I pray that you would um, let those truths sink into our heart to change us. We love you. We thank you. We pray that we would worship you well this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Father, you are great and mighty 
and merciful. You are loving. You are faithful. You are steadfast. You are gracious and you are kind. And we love you so much, God, but we know that it's only because you loved us first. We thank you for this opportunity to study your perfect and holy word. We know that this is much more than a history lesson. This is much more than a collection of wise sayings. This, these are your words. They are living and active. They are sharper than any two-edged sword. They are able to pierce to the very souls of who we are, to, di- to discern and to decide between the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, and we are thankful for that. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to lift us up this morning, to encourage us, to direct us, to correct us, to redirect us. We know that He can do all of these things through the power of His Word, and we rely on him in this time. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you grab your Bibles as you grab your seat and open with me to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to study all the way through the book of Jonah. This will take us four weeks, a chapter a week, and I'm excited. It's going to be good. A lot of people learned about Jonah when they were eight years old in Sunday school and haven't thought about him too much since then. And there's so much goodness and importance in this book. Some would describe Jonah as a reluctant hero. I'm not sure I would give him that title, but I'll give you some examples of of a reluctant hero. This is actually a pretty common um, trope or or character type that we find in uh, both literature and in film. The classic example would be Jefferson Smith in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. He was just a Boy Scout leader who was appointed as a senator. Um, I'll give you a more up-to-date reference, Um, still kind of old, Han Solo. He was in it just for the reward. Remember, he wanted to save Princess Leia, not because he was a hero, because he was going to get rewarded for it. And then when it's time to go and attack the Death Star, he cuts out. But then he does come back in the end, and he saves everybody. And so he's a reluctant hero. Here's another one. Uh, Shrek. Shrek just wants his swamp back. He doesn't want to save a princess from a dragon. He just wants his swamp back. The examples can go on and on. Rooster and True Grit, Maximus and Gladiator, Frodo and the Lord of the Rings. These are reluctant heroes, people who don't necessarily want to step up, but when they are called upon, they ultimately choose to do the right thing. Well, I don't think that's a good description of Jonah. He was called upon to do something very challenging, very difficult, and he chose not to reluctantly obey. He chose to run, to be completely, directly, willfully disobedient. And so if he is not even, we can't even call him a reluctant hero, then, then why, are we, why is our whole book dedicated to him? What are we, could we possibly learn from him, from his example? Well, there is something important for us to learn. Uh, the Word of God is, is breathed out by God. It is purposefully going to instruct us and show us something important through this text. A little bit of background. We don't know too much about Jonah. The only other reference we have to Jonah in the Bible is in 2 Kings chapter 14. And from that passage, we learn that he was a prophet around 780 B.C. during the reign of King Jeroboam II. Which, of course, you remember King Jeroboam II, right? He was uh, an unrighteous king. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. But God sent a message to Jeroboam and to the people through Jonah that he would provide salvation for them, even though they didn't deserve it. 
So this tells us that Jonah was originally a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, but there are some indications in the book of Jonah that he had moved perhaps to Jerusalem and Judah and the southern kingdom. And I believe it is during this time, his ministry in Jerusalem and the southern kingdom, that he receives another call to deliver another message as the prophet of the Lord. This is where we turn now to verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So this is a typical calling that we would expect to see in in pretty much any prophetic work, that uh, God calls his prophet, he gives him a message to deliver, and then what we typically see is the prophet goes and does it. Now, Jonah's call is a little bit unique because he's being sent to a wicked city. Uh, the Ninevites were, Nineveh was a, a prominent city in Assyria, which was the world power of the day. In about 40 years, it's going to become the capital city of Assyria. And the, the Assyrians were known not just for conquering the world, but doing it in a particularly brutal and torturous way. In other words, after they conquered a people, they would do such terrible things to them that it would make the rest of the world fear so that when they came to fight someone else, people would just want to surrender. They would do things like skin people alive and then cover the city walls in those skins. They would rip off their lips, rip off their hands. They would uh, put them alive on a stake out front of the city. They would do things that were not just torturous, but also vindictive. They would cut off a man's legs and, it, and his left arm and leave him his right arm so they could shake his hand as he died. Uh, the, the king of Assyria was known for having a pile of skulls next to his throne. And these weren't just ordinary skulls. These were skulls of kings that he had conquered. And so Jonah is giving an undoubtedly difficult calling God has called him to do something that in his mind could easily result not just in his death, but in a very torturous, humiliating death. But everywhere else in the Bible, a prophet is called and the, they respond to the call. The surprise, the twist is this. If this is the first time uh, you're hearing this story, imagine being uh, a, a good Jewish person of the people of God. You've studied the Bible your whole life. You've seen all these other prophets be obedient. You hear the call from God. What do you expect? You expect obedience. You expect him to arise and go to Nineveh. But then verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, a good rule of thumb for studying the Bible is that repetition is used for emphasis. They're trying to drive home a very specific point, and that is that Jonah is trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, this is probably a story that you were told when you were in Sunday school when you were eight, eight years old, and you were told well, now, there's, no, there's nowhere you can run from God. 
God's presence is everywhere. He is the creator of everything. You cannot, just because God's presence might be intentionally amongst us as a church, does not mean his presence isn't in your bedroom when you're at home. It doesn't mean his presence isn't across the ocean uh, where other peoples might even worship other gods. God is everywhere. And you were taught that perhaps as an eight-year-old in Sunday school. And guess what? Jonah was taught that as an eight-year-old in Hebrew Bible school. He was taught that his entire life. And yet somehow, for some reason, he has decided that he can run from the presence of God. Where to? To Tarshish. This gives us an indication of Jonah's thinking. Tarshish was on the tip, the westernmost tip of what we would call Spain. In other words, according to how Jonah understood the world, this was geographically farthest from Jerusalem, the place in the world that was farthest away from the temple. He was called to go 600 miles northeast to Nineveh, and he went over 2,000 miles directly west in the opposite direction. Now, why in the world would Jonah do this? Well, as I told you, the Jewish people, they believed in one God— maker of heaven and earth, who was suddenly in control over the entire world. They were unique in this belief. The rest of the world believed in many, many gods that had power in specific places or over specific realms. So, uh, Yom would be the god of sea. And so, Yom had power when you were in the sea. You, there were no reason to when you're on the land, he doesn't have power here. Dagon was the god of the Philistines. So there's no reason to pray to Dagon when you're in Jerusalem because that's where Yahweh has power. Dagon has power when you're with the Philistines. Bill of the storm uh, for the Canaanites. And so if you need crops, uh, rain for your crops. Well, guess who you're going to pray for? Ba- to. You're going to pray to Baal because he has power in that place over that realm. This is what most of the world believed except for Jewish people. And so what does Jonah's actions demonstrate for us? It tells us that the beliefs of the world, the thinking of the world, had slowly crept into his mind. Now, he probably wouldn't have admitted this to his friends. He probably wouldn't have had a conversation at the temple. Well, God's powerful here. Yahweh is powerful here. But if we go to, um, you know, we go to Canaan, then we want to pray to Baal, right? Well, this is why, as we think about different stories throughout the Bible, people were so astounded by who God was and what he could do. What happened when the ark of came into Dagon's temple before Dagon's idol. The idol fell over and its hands were broken off and its head was broken off showing it was useless. What's going on? That's where Dagon is supposed to have power. What happens whenever uh, Elijah proposes this competition with the prophets of Baal? That one of our gods should be able to send fire from heaven to consume this offering. Well, who would have power to send fire from heaven? The storm god. And so Elijah is giving the Baal home court advantage because he has no doubt in his mind that there is no Baal. There is only one true God. He is sovereign over all things, every place, every city, every realm. But Jonah has begun to doubt that. 
he thinks, I don't want to be obedient to God's call. The only way I could possibly get away with being obedient to God's call is to leave Jerusalem. And maybe if I get far enough away, if I get to Tarshish, I will be out of his presence. And and so he ultimately, he hears God's call and he does everything in his power to reject the story that God is putting him in. And so Jonah ultimately, for us, the benefit we have in studying Jonah is that he is not the example that we want to follow. He's the example we want to learn from to not be like him. And the first thing that we can learn is that God is sovereign over your story. God is sovereign over your story. That God intended for Jonah a specific calling. That he gave him specific gifts. And yes, even specific difficulties associated with that calling. But those things were intended for Jonah. That was the story that God was writing for Jonah. And Jonah rejects it. Now let's make sure we understand our terms here before we keep moving. When we use the word sovereign, referring to like an earthly king, that just means that they're the boss. They're in charge of this country. But when we use the word sovereign to describe God, we're saying that he has power and control over all things, all of creation, that he even has power and control over the course of human history, that he has an end in mind of how all of this is going to resolve. We just learned about that in New Eden and the return of Christ, and God is able to craft history toward his end, towards his will, and toward his purpose. And so that's what we say when we say that God is sovereign. And astoundingly, he's not just sovereign over maintaining creation. He's not just sovereign over this big narrative of human history. He's also sovereign over your story. Every single one of us in this room, individually, purposefully. He is writing a story for you. He is calling you to a role, to a responsibility. He has given you gifts in order to fulfill that calling. And yes, even that means we go through difficulties as well. So Jonah, sorry, I can't call him a reluctant hero. I would in fact not even call Jonah an anti-hero. This is another character type that we see in a lot of movies. Whereas the reluctant hero didn't want to do the right thing, but ultimately did do the right thing. The anti-hero is someone who does the wrong thing, and yet you still root for them. Uh, You still want them to be successful. Um, Some examples would be like Michael Corleone in The Godfather, or Holden Caulfield in The Catcher in the Rye, or a little bit more lofty here, The Grinch. Um, You know, like he's a bad person person. He does bad things, but you still like him for some reason, right? Or on a Walter White, you know, for whatever reason, they do bad things, but we admire their cunning. We admire their strength. We admire their courage. And so we ultimately, though they are anti-heroes, we end up rooting for them. Well, Jonah is not a reluctant hero, and he's not even an anti-hero. There is nothing that he is doing in this story that is deserving of our admiration or our um, uh, copying. There's a better word for that. Um, Imitation. Thank you. You didn't say it, but thank you anyway. Um, 
there's nothing to admire. <laughs> you were thinking it. You like, it was like telepathically communicated to me. Um, so this is intended to be a warning. We don't want to be like Jonah. We want to guard against the trap that he has fallen into. And that trap is this. That unbiblical thinking leads to unbiblical living. Unbiblical thinking leads to unbiblical living. The thinking and the belief of the world had slowly infiltrated into Jonah's mind. And because of that, he began to live differently. He began to live in disobedience to God. He began to believe, well, maybe God really only has power here in Jerusalem, so I'm going to get out of town. Now, here's the thing. We have to wrestle with the same question. Now, we might not wrestle with the exact same belief. Maybe you don't think that there's a God, that Allah has more power in the Middle East than God does. Maybe you don't wrestle with that unbiblical thinking, but we all wrestle with unbiblical thinking about God's sovereignty. And here's the thing. I don't think Jonah would have ever vocalized it. I don't even know if Jonah would have admitted it in the quiet of his heart, and yet it came out when push came to shove. There's no other reason to run from God's presence unless you think that God is not everywhere. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves, and it's going to require some brutal honesty, is what unbiblical thinking about God's sovereignty do we struggle with? Again, this is probably nothing you would say aloud in your Bible study. It might not even be something you realize that you were beginning to believe. But Satan is crafty. The world is deceiving. And unbiblical thinking, unbiblical beliefs begin slowly, inch by inch, to creep into our minds and into our hearts. And if we are not on guard against it, we will find ourselves all of a sudden living unbiblically. And so what unbiblical thinking about God's sovereignty do we struggle with? I think it's very natural all of us sometimes wrestle with this. We say, is God really in control? I mean, as we look around at the world, it doesn't always feel that way. We might say, okay, God's in control, but can I trust him? I mean, does he care enough about me. Yes, he has the power to uphold the universe, but will he put his hand of protection over me and over my family? Does he care about me that much? Maybe we wrestle with this question. Who is winning this battle between good and evil? In our culture, it seems like evil is gaining ground rather than God. Or maybe, maybe you struggle with the story that God has written for you. Maybe you wish he had given you a different calling. Maybe you wish he had given you different gifts. Maybe you recognize that all of us have different struggles, and maybe there are days when you say, God, I just wish you had given me a different struggle. And in each of these questions, what we have to realize is that we are rejecting God as sovereign, powerfully in control over all things. 
do not fall into this trap. Do not allow that unbiblical thinking to creep into your mind because the result will be disobedient, unbiblical living. Instead, believe that God is sovereign. He is in control. You can trust Him. He is winning the battle between good and evil. He has actually already defeated evil, and we are just waiting for the final defeat. He is in control over the story that He is writing for you. The calling that you have is from God. The gifts that you have are from God, and even the struggles that you have have been allowed by God. So trust His sovereignty. When you find yourself wrestling with those unbiblical thoughts, pray this prayer. God, please give me greater faith in your sovereign control over all things. Please help me to trust that my story is not an accident. The gifts that you have, the calling that you've been has been placed upon your life. It is not an accident. And whether you like it or not, it is still a beautiful and good calling that God has intended. In 1 Corinthians, the church is described as a body. And each one of us, each member of the church, is a member of that body. Now, some body parts are more visible and others less visible. Some body parts are stronger and others weaker. But it doesn't matter. Each and every one of them is described by God in His Word as indispensable to the body. Regardless of whether you think your calling is the best calling, you are indispensable to the body of Christ. So do not doubt that story that God is writing for you. Do not doubt the way that he has called you or gifted you or even the struggles that you wrestle with. Instead, pray, God, please help me to believe that you have sovereignly written this story for me and then embrace that story. So God is he's sovereign over your story and as we keep reading, we'll see he's sovereign over more than that. Verses four through nine now. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, what is going on here? Yom is supposed to be the god of the sea, and Baal is supposed to be the god of the storm. Well, who is God proving himself to be? The only God. Jonah thinks he can run from God's presence to a different realm, and God is saying, there is no different realm. I am the God of all. This is a pretty serious storm that God has sent after Jonah, so much so that verse 5, we see that the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So these sea-hardened sailors who have seen storms before are concerned that they are about to be killed by this storm. They begin to pray to their gods, who can help us, calling out for power from heaven. And there is no answer because they call out to the wrong god. So then they throw their livelihood overboard in an attempt to save their lives. This shows you how serious the storm is that God has sent. But where's Jonah? Verse 5, Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. 
This is no hero, okay? Jonah is asleep, I can imagine, only for two possible reasons. Either one, he is so convinced that he has left the presence of God that he can sleep like a baby. Or two, he has come to terms with what is happening and he would rather drown than go and be skinned alive in Assyria. I, I don't know of any other reason that Jonah would be asleep. Let's keep reading. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. He's saying, we've tried all the gods that we know to pray to, and no one has answered. Maybe you know a God that we don't know. Maybe he has the power here to save us. And they they said to one another, apparently Jonah didn't do anything about this because they go to option B. They said to one another, come on, let's cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So casting a lot was an ancient practice, a game of chance, almost like rolling dice or pulling straws to see who gets the short short straw. And the idea was that the gods were going to sovereignly control how the dice fell how the straws were pulled, how the lots fell, in order to give them some kind of insight or discernment into the situation. They don't know what to do. They've tried everything they know what to do, and they're hoping that this uh, casting of lots is going to give them some direction. And ironically, God sovereignly controls how the lots fall. It identifies Jonah as the source of the problem. Verse 8, They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Notice there in the text that Lord is spelled with all capital letters. This is important to know as you're reading your Bible. You'll find the Lord written with a capital L and a lowercase O-R-D, and that is the word, the title of Lord, King. Okay, but when Lord is written in all capital letters, that is a replacement word for Yahweh, which is the proper name of the one true God of Israel. So anytime you see capital L-O-R-D, think the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh. So what Jonah actually said was this, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the only Lord, the only God. He is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. In other words, what Jonah had learned in his mind years ago, he has now learned in his heart. There is no place where I can run from God's presence. This storm has convinced him that God is sovereign over all of the realms, over heaven, over the land, over the sea. It's all God's. There is no place you can go from him. Jonah knew that, but he didn't really know it. And God has corrected his unbiblical thinking by sending this storm after him. And so we can see from this text from this section of the text, that God is not only sovereign over your story, but God is also sovereign over your storms. God is sovereign over your storms. Now, it could be easy for us to take this truth statement and to misunderstand it, so let's pump the brakes for just a second and make sure we understand what this means, okay? 
Does this mean that every storm that you go through is God's direct discipline against you? That is clearly what is happening in this text for Jonah. But that is not the cause of every storm in your life. Well, how can we know that to be true? Well, who has to go through this storm? Jonah and the sailors. Essentially, the sailors are in this storm because they're caught in the crossfire. God is dealing with Jonah, and they just happen to be there. Now, does that mean that every storm in the world is the direct, deliberate action of God? No, that is not what we should take from this text. Because we know from the study we just finished that even the ground is cursed because of our sin. Meaning there are plenty of storms in the world that are just the result of us living in a broken and a fallen world affected by sin. There are plenty of storms that you have had to face in your life that you you would say, God did not cause this. This was the sin of someone else against me. So there are plenty of storms that you will go through in your life that are not the direct discipline of God. But regardless of what the cause of the storm is, the encouragement in this text is God is in control over every single one of them. Whether you are Jonah or the sailor, God is still sovereign over your storms. And so that still requires a little bit of wrestling, though, when you find yourself in a storm. You need to discern, so why is this happening because this text tells us that this, there is a chance that a storm that you are facing is the direct action, the direct discipline of God. So how would you go about discerning that? If you are the Jonah in this storm, did God hurl this storm at you? And again, storm is a big, scary word. That's kind of radical. Jonah is a pretty radical story. Much more commonly, you could face this little storm that the Holy Spirit will not give you rest on this issue. Now, that is a common storm that we face as Christians when we are being disobedient to the Lord. The Holy Spirit, who lives inside of you, will not give you rest over continued disobedience. So whether it's a small storm or a large storm, God can use them to correct you in the same way that he corrected Jonah. So if you are in a storm and through prayer and seeking the Holy Spirit, you realize that you have been living deliberately in disobedience to God's call or to God's command, then repent. Turn the other way. Be obedient. Because God is using that storm to get your attention and to correct you. But maybe you're not the Jonah. Maybe you're a sailor in this story. Someone who is just caught in the crossfire. Someone who just lives in a broken and a fallen world. Then hold tightly to this truth and do not let go. God is still in control. No matter how bad the storm gets. He has not lost control. He's not barely in control. He's not scrambling to keep up. 
Hebrews 1.3 tells us that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If he has that much power, then trust that none of the storms that come into your life are outside of his will, outside of his control. That's helpful, but that doesn't make it necessarily easy. To be honest, it is very difficult to trust God during storms in your life. I mean, it's easy to trust God when everything's going good, right? Uh, you know, the bills are paid and the house isn't falling apart and the, the kids aren't in trouble at school and uh, the, the car has all four wheels. It's easy to trust God then, right? But when a storm comes, that's when it really shows if you have faith in His sovereignty, I might be speaking from a little bit of firsthand experience here. I have a bud in ministry who, who, who says that he gets nervous when he's preaching because he finds that God always makes him live the sermon for the entire week up to that Sunday. And it's easy to trust God until that unexpected bill comes. And then another unexpected bill comes. And then you spend all day Saturday digging up your water line because it's leaking That's a very specific example. I don't know where that could have come from. (laughs) And when those things start falling like dominoes, it it is very human and very natural to lose, for your faith to be shaken. And say things like, man, God, can't I just catch a break? Are you really in control over all this mess? We have to hold tightly to his word. He is not taken off guard by the water leak at my house. He is not taken off guard by the storm in your life. And if you would hold tightly to him through that storm, he will grow your faith and he will grow your wisdom. If only we could be more like Fanny Crosby. Maybe you don't know who Fanny Crosby is, but you certainly know some of the songs that she wrote. In her life, she lived in the 1800s, she wrote over 8,000 hymns. Some of them are Blessed Assurance, To God Be the Glory, Draw Me Nearer. What you might not know about Fanny Crosby is that she was blind for almost her entire life. That is a very, very young child due to a medical accident. The doctor used the wrong medicine, caused her to go blind from a very young, as a very young child for the rest of her life. And over time, and over wrestling with that storm, and wrestling with her faith, she actually grew the faith and the wisdom to become thankful for her blindness. These are her words, what she said about it. One thing I know Although it may have been a blunder on the physician's part, it was no mistake of God's. I verily believe it was his intention that I should live my days in physical darkness so as to be better prepared to sing his praises and incite others to do so. I could not have written thousands of hymns, many of which, if you will pardon me for repeating it, are sung all over the world if I had been hindered by the distractions of seeing all the interesting and beautiful objects that would have been presented to my notice. So she got to the point 
where she became thankful for that storm in her life. She became thankful for the blindness that allowed her to devote and dedicate her life to writing hymns that we still sing today, 200 years later. If only we would have that faith. If only we would have that wisdom to recognize in the moment when there is a storm over our life that God can use this. Maybe I'm on the wrong track and he's trying to redirect me. Maybe I'm believing the wrong things and he's trying to correct my mind. Maybe I'm not doing anything wrong, but he's still going to use this to give me more faith and to give me more wisdom in his sovereignty. And so we too can be thankful that God is sovereign over our storms. He's sovereign over our story. He's sovereign over our storms. And one more thing as we finish out the text, verses 10 through 17. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. If anybody's a hero in this story, it's not Jonah, it's these sailors, right? But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. God continued to be sovereign and to be powerful over the sea. Verse 14, the men, they they realized there's nothing they can do. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Notice, all capitals. They called out, after calling out to Yom, after calling out to Baal, after calling out to Dagon, they called out to Yahweh. And they said, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Let us not lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord. You, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Clearly, God demonstrating his power, his sovereignty. I kind of picture an awkward moment though because they throw him into the sea and the the storm is gone and I would imagine there's a minute where Jonah's just kind of like bobbing there like, and the sailor's like, Bye, Jonah. <laughs> You're not getting back in here. No way. You know, like, um, that's not actually in the text, but I just, it's just I, that's what I picture. Okay. Um, verse 16. Then the, mere, the men feared the Lord. They feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, to Yahweh, and made vows. These men, they saw God's sovereign power over all of creation, and they were convinced that Yahweh is the only God. Their response is they worship Him, and they become obedient to Him alone. Remember, at this point in the story, where's Jonah? He's in the sea. So how in the world would we know the detail of this story unless these men had returned back to Jerusalem and became God-fearers, converted to the one true God of Israel. 
Verse 17. Jonah doesn't bob there for long because the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now we're going to have to stop there. And that is quite the cliffhanger. If that doesn't motivate you to come back for next week, I don't know what will. But this gives us plenty to chew on. Because what we see clearly from this story as we are learning about God's sovereignty is that he is not only sovereign over your story, he's not only sovereign over your storms, but God is also sovereign over your salvation. God is sovereign over your salvation. That he saved Jonah from death with the belly of a fish, that he saved these men from the storm by his graciousness, and more than that, he saved them for all all of eternity, when they saw his power and they became devoted and dedicated to him. Think about your story. As you look back on it now, as you think about when you were saved, don't you see how God was lining up all of the things that needed to happen so that you could come to faith in him? It's amazing. It's astounding. Now, I already stepped on everybody's toes about the book of Revelation, so I guess I've been here eight weeks. I'm just ready to make everybody mad. So let's just, let's talk about this. You don't have to be in the church for very long to realize that this, this conversation, this wrestling with both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man makes people mad. People want to argue about it. They've been arguing about it for about 2,000 years now. And so let's ask the question. God is, was God sovereign over these sailors' salvation in this moment? What do we see throughout this story? Do we see the sovereignty of God or do we see the free will of man? We see both. God gave a sovereign calling to Jonah and Jonah said, no, I'm not doing it. And yet somehow, unimaginably, God used Jonah's disobedience to save these sailors. I don't understand it. But instead of fighting about the best way to word this, let's just praise God for who he is. He is sovereign. He's in control. And the fact that somehow he is able to accomplish his perfect end, not only in accordance with our And so we should be incredibly encouraged by that to go and to share the gospel. He is sovereign. Maybe you're here this morning because it is God's sovereign will that you would come to salvation. Maybe you didn't even know why you came today. Maybe you were forced to come. Maybe it was some weird, offhanded desire Don't you see God is sovereign? He is in control. And it is his desire that you would come to him in faith. It is his desire that you would not face the punishment for your sin, which is an eternity in hell. It is his desire that you would place your faith in Jesus, make him the Lord of your life, turn from your sin. And when you do that, you would be saved for the punishment for sin because Christ already paid for the punishment when he willingly died on the cross. Maybe that's the whole reason you're here this morning. Submit to the sovereignty of God. We're going to have a time of response, which is 
if we're Christians in this room, I think the only logical response would be that we would glorify God for who He is and His sovereignty. But maybe there are some in this room who the way that they need to respond is to submit to His sovereignty, to make Jesus the Lord of their life. If that's you, I'm going to be in the front of the room right here, ready to speak with you. Father, we are so thankful for Your perfect and holy word.